Lord, we thank you for Jonathan. We thank you for the word that you put in his heart. And we ask, Lord, that we would hear what you are saying to us today. And we pray, especially as he goes tomorrow, we ask for your favor to rest on the doctor's hands. And we thank you for what the doctors can do. But we ask, Lord, most of all, that you would be his health and his healing even now. Even now, we pray for your hand of, a hand of healing on him. Amen. The origin of my operation is that uh, Peter Warren looked in my ear and could see right through to the other side. <laughs> so the doctors want to fill the cavity with some cosmic neuroreceptors. So uh, if next week you see me muttering, I may not be speaking in tongues. Maybe talking to the Martians. <laughs> Greet you all in the name of Jesus, who's packing, coming very soon. There was this bandit, and he was a nasty piece of work. And rape and burglary and murder, all part of the, the act. But his real crime was rebellion against the emperor. Danielle is coming forward. She reminds me of when Russell, at a wedding, said, does anyone know just reason why these two should not be joined? And one of the bridesmaid's mothers got up and walked forward to straighten the bridesmaid's dress. And Russell thought this was an objection coming to the wedding. No, is it your wedding, is it? No, was it? <laughs> yeah, Laverne to Blanc, that's right. Are you okay, Daniel, are you? Ephrata. All right. All right. Rebellion. Rebellion is the core iniquity in the heart of the human soul. And the word of God this morning has a tendency to provoke rebellion in the house of God. And this gangster, this nasty piece of work, was paying for all his wicked crimes, above all for rebellion against the emperor. 
and in the blur of agony and sweat and blood, he saw this human wreck beside him. who had upset the religious authorities. And through the blur of pain and terror, the bandit saw a king reigning in complete control of the situation. A bloody wreck, bruised and battered and scarred. And yet a king had turned the gibbet into a throne. And so the bandit sang. Lord, remember me. When you come into your kingdom, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The king replied, This day you will be with me in paradise. This day you will be with me in paradise. Like us to sing that again and claim it as a personal promise. This day you will be with me in paradise. This day you will be with me in paradise. We're coming to the end of a Kloof Theological Center course on Romans. And it has been quite awesome in that every week two of the students give a presentation on certain chapters based on various journals that we are studying from Professor Don Williams and Professor Derek Morphew. And it's been very, very high standard. I've been threatened out of my mind. I've been corrected about my Greek. Wasn't much to correct, but never mind. And on Thursday, it was Avril Morris's turn. And the other person had dropped the ball and hadn't prepared anything, so Avril had to do the whole do two innings. And, and she was a bit apprehensive. And she explained that as she came. She was brilliant. She was so good that when she had finished, they all clapped her. And no one else had been clapped. Uh, I think about ministering today, but when you see her, just honor her for her bravery and her forthright excellent that we were doing Romans 9 to 11 of all things.
of the Word of God today, one of the people at the course said, I've never, in, and he's, a, he's a, a senior evangelical who, who knows his way around the church and the scriptures and the stories. He said, I've never heard anyone preach on election. Ever. And, and when Alan asks me to preach, I normally have something cooking in my heart. But this time when he asked me to, to preach, which is a delight and a privilege, I had nothing. So I went before the Lord and said, Lord, what's all this about? And clear as a bell, one word came, election. And the doctrine of election provokes anger because it doesn't make sense. It's not fair. It's outrageous. It, it, it comes up in 16 of the books of the New Testament and probably 20. It's a core doctrine of the gospel, but it's avoided because it provokes anger, particularly with intelligent people, with logical, rational people who say two and two equals four because the doctrine of election does not make sense. It's outrageous. Now the context in which we are looking at this difficult ever to be avoided doctrine which is the core of the gospel which is the core of our relationship with God presents to us that we go through and are part of three ages the word of God does not make sense to the natural mind. Excuse me. The three ages in which we are involved, the first age is before the world began. And something happened to us before the world began. Well, that's absurd. How can something happen to me before the world began when I wasn't even there? Well, before the world began, there was an election. Not like, ah, one man, one vote elections. The electorate consisted of one almighty God. The candidates consisted of the entire human race. Hold on to your hats. 
some were elect. Which means some were not. That's not fair! It is not known on what basis the elect were elected. So let's have a look at Romans 9. Let's go back to the other one you've just had. Uh, Romans 9, 10 to 14. That's that's, okay, very good. Uh, Yeah. Let's go to Ephesians then. There you are. Before the creation of the world, we were chosen. Oh, finishing clowns, they were robots. And let's have a go at Romans 9 then. Uh, let's go back to Romans 9 and see what it says. And one and the same father, one father, I, before the twins were born or had done anything good and bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. I beg your pardon. God's a God of love. doesn't hate. That's not fair. Now, part of the answer that Paul gives when the objection is raised and it's recorded in Scripture, you know, how does God judge us if we didn't have an option? God says, let God be God. The potter molds the clay as he will. And if God is a malignant, psychopathic tyrant, so be it. Nothing you can do about it. It's it's not what you or I think or like or think he should be. God is who he is. But what the scripture reveals, beloved, is that God is righteous, just, sovereign, Lord of all, as well as being loving, merciful, kind, beautiful, tender, compassionate, and long-suffering. So what's the point of evangelism and prayer and sacrificially following Jesus if it's all done, done deal? And the scholars, and this has been wrestled with from right through the ages, Augustine and Calvin and Loyola and all the rest of them, they have said, they've come to one conclusion they agree on because they argue like... I won't say they argue like hell about the rest of it, but they all say, do not try to reconcile the irreconcilable. 
And when, when Spurgeon was asked, how do you reconcile the responsibility of man with the sovereignty of God? He says, don't try. Because the other side of this coin, beloved, is that while his God is 100% sovereign, absolutely 100, not 99.999, God is sovereign. And, and sovereignty means that everything that ever happens anywhere is under his sovereign oversight. God sovereignly allows things to happen which he doesn't approve of. He is absolutely sovereign. But the other side of this coin is that human beings are 100% responsible to God. Doesn't make sense. One or the other. Make up your mind. Election is a force. It is a force which drives. It's a, it's a force which drives God's purposes on the earth in the church. It's an election which captivates human hearts and grants them repentance and faith and without it there would be no uh, repentance or faith. Election drives humans to serve the Lord sacrificially unto death where necessary. Election drives prayer and mission and discipleship. Election is the, is, is the launching point of all Holy Ghost-driven, led activity. So we need not be afraid of this election we need to be very grateful that we are elect. We've been chosen. You know, all the about the chosen race. Israel's a chosen race. And the Gentiles have also been chosen. Been chosen. Haven't been chosen for any value in me or merit, or worth, or performance. Just been chosen sovereignly by the grace of God and the mystery of his will, which is incalculable. Chosen and accountable. Accountable to the Lord according to his word. For the academics, this, this mystery is called an antimony. Antimony is two propositions which are both true and they contradict one another. And, and one analogy is the railway tracks that are parallel to one another, but they never meet except in the distance just as they go out of sight. Totally sovereign and totally accountable. Now the argument over the ages, quite reasonably, in this terms of predestination, 
Augustine believed, as Calvin believed, that there, were, there was a double predestination. They were convinced that the word says, Almighty God, sovereign, loving, merciful, kind, beautiful, righteous, loving God, predestined the non-elect to damnation before the foundation of the world. They believe that. They said it's in the word. Uh, Luther didn't believe in double predestination. Luther, well, mind you, the scholars, they argue about everything. Some say Luther did and some say Luther didn't. But, but Luther is normally accepted by my modern Lutherans anyhow is that Luther believed in the predestination of the elect and he hedged about the non-elect he didn't know what was going on with them the 39 articles of the Church of England referred to the doctrines of election and predestination and said these are comfortable words. They're not words for philosophical and theological argument and controversy. They're comfortable words. And if we allow them to be just that, that's very encouraging. Am I saved? We look at our lives and we find that there are certain things in our lives which are evil. There are certain attitudes, there are certain addictions which are evil. And the Lord hates them. He loves us. Esau have I hated. And one of the things that we've been learning in our Romans course is that the scriptures are introducing us to two dynamics of reality. The universal and the particular. We've done the thief on the cross who saw a universal king who received a particular promise, a personal promise. This day you will be with me in paradise. And and so this Esau-Jacob story we've read in Romans 9, which is outrageous to the logical, intelligent, rational mind, Some are saying we must see it as representative of a mindset which God hates. To be carnally minded is death. And and this understanding, the suggestion is, that the whole human race is Esau. With its antichrist, godless, depraved, idolatrous, self-worshipping drives from which there is a community elected 
to repent and believe and worship the true God. So in that understanding, that which is Esau can become Jacob, if you're elect. One of the issues of election and sovereignty is this, and that is the total incapacity of the human soul to respond to God. As it says in Romans, the human soul is hostile to God. Not indifferent, not neutral, hostile. That's who we were when we were born. The first thing we said, if you remember, when we were born was, Get off my back, God. I'm the center of the universe. Mummy, move it. Cuddle me, feed me, comfort me, change me. Hostile, unwilling to receive the word of God, and incapable of receiving the word of God. That is the profile of the word of God regarding the human condition in relationship to God. And this, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God requires us to submit to that diagnosis. We have no capacity whatsoever to do anything in relationship to God that pleases him unless we are caught up in the drive of his elective purposes, which is why we're here this morning. One of the things God hates with a passionate hate is church going. Religiosity. And the revelation is that the judgment of God falls upon two communities on the earth. One is the pagan world, which worships all sorts of gods. And the other is the religious world, which is very pious and worships the gods of the Jews and the Christians. The religiosity, the form of godliness, denying the power. God hates it. He prefers us to be hostile than lukewarm. But he loves his elect. And there's a process going on in the elect. God is at work in us, cleansing us and liberating us and dealing with the attitudes of our hearts and our values and our relationships, particularly our attitudes and relationships with people we do not like. Because there are people we do not like. And God loves them to pieces. And so we are being transformed. What have I got here? 
An example of human dependency on mercy is the case of Lazarus. What did Lazarus do in order to come alive from the dead? Absolutely nothing. Come forth, Lazarus. The scripture says we are crucified with Christ. And again and again the word of God says you are dead. So there you are, dead. And I kick you. You can't take offense. You can't feel it. If you take offense and get irritated and uptight and offended, it's because you're not dead. Can't hurt a corpse. Let's have John 15, verse 16, please. Uh, You didn't choose me. When we gave our lives to the Lord, because we were elect. So much for the age before the world was made. This election took place before the world was made. Read it, Psalm 139. All our days, every day of our lives is written in God's diary before the world existed. I beg your pardon. Alice in Wonderland is rational compared to that. Now for the age. This world, this age, is under judgment. It's under the judgment of a furious, angry God who, as in the days of Noah, God wanted to wipe the human race off the face of the earth. But for Noah. And this age is in the same state, but for Jesus. This world is not going to get better. It's going to get unspeakably worse. Scriptures are very clear about this. This world, by the way, there's a a Muslim mayor of London. Tinkle, tinkle, tinkle. So 2 Timothy 3, 1, 2, 8. Inhuman, implacable, brutes, treacherous, corrupt, and counterfeit faith. It's all coming. It's coming. Terrible times shall come. Meanwhile, we're being transformed in this age. This age runs as a sort of simply running through the scripture. If you note it in, in Corinthians and Titus and whatever, this age. And in one case, it says in the world to come, but the theologian says it's not in the original world to come, it's the age to come. We're going to look at the age to come in a minute. Greatest miracle, 2 Corinthians 3.18, please. We know it. Through all with open face, beholding in a glass the glory of the Lord, are being changed into the same image. From glory to glory, we have got a destiny to be glorious and spotless and pure and holy. 
And that's what's going on all the time. God is at work in us. He's sorting us out. Sorting out my politics, my value, my bank balance, my priorities, my relationships. So election drives evangelism, mission, intercession, fellowship, worship, repentance, faith, discipleship, pursuit of holiness. Election gives impetus and confidence to every Christian endeavor. What he has begun, he will perfect. And whatever God has called to you, when everything goes wrong, nothing's gone wrong, election guarantees the solution that God so ordains. It is not up to us. Leave it to me, I'll sort you out. I did it my way. That's what they're saying in hell. I did it my way. One Philippians six, he who begun a good work in you will complete it by the day of Jesus Christ. We are saved, we are being saved, and we shall yet be saved. We were sanctified, we are being sanctified, and we shall yet be sanctified. It's a process. And I say with reverence before the Lord, you've got a lot of work to do. So what about the age to come? We are being swept along the mega-narrative of God's purposes. Predestined, called, justified, glorified. Romans 8. And rather than getting locked up to each word and trying to unpack it, it's a sweep. It's the universal sweep. We are destined for glory. We've sung today about the King of glory. Jesus said to the Father, the glory you gave me, I have given them. That's a faith statement as I look around, particularly in the mirror. We are glorious, but God doesn't see us as we see ourselves. But there is within us a desire for that glory. That's what the world's on about. And the world is reaching for things in the flesh which God has ordained for us in the spirit. That's what the new age is all about. There is going to be a new age. And the devil's the Lord's most faithful disciple. is trying to bring a new age according to the flesh. And this conference that Jane and I were at, we could say back, we had a high-powered head shrinker there. He was very, very good. But he was in the new age. And he said, we must wake up to the new age. And he, he said, the secular people also are in the new age. So I asked him, I said, sir, um, he said, we must all give thanks. It's also biblical up to a point. And then he said, so I said, sir, who do the secular people give thanks to? Oh, to the world. Oh, to the universe. This is our gospel of hope. We are co-heirs of the kingdom of God. 
where we will rule over angels. No more death, sorrow, and tear. This is our hope. Our hope is in the kingdom. Our hope is in the Lord's return. It's not in this earth. It's not in this age. You know, we've all received emails, haven't we? That we've won the lottery and some ancient aunt has left us several million dollars. All right. I mean, I get those every week and no doubt you do too. But the hope of the gospel is far more than any of that. Jesus is our hope. It's wonderful. We are the only people who are entitled to be optimistic and hopeful. Not because of this age. It doesn't matter what the politicians do. It doesn't matter if the economics of the world goes down the plug. It doesn't matter at all. The king is coming. Lord, remember me. First, it's going to be a millennial age. Jesus is coming back and we're going to rule the world for a thousand years at the end of which Satan will be released and the whole of the human race that is there, the non-elect, will rebel yet again. Believe it. They've had nothing to complain about. In in, in the millennial reign, there's no poverty, no sickness. Everything's perfect. No shanties. And that there's rebellion because the core of the human soul is a hatred and rebellion against God. And so were we. Until election caught up with us. Let's get on the cross. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This day you will be with me in paradise. This day you will be with me in paradise. I have a confession to make. I'm going to go to a general anesthetic tomorrow. And I have a secret hope. The surgeon the surgeon will stumble and slit my throat. <laughs> now we're going to sing a song. Him. Perhaps we should stand. Goodness me, that's good stuff. All right, we're going to sing the church's one foundation. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord. She is his new creation. By water and the word From heaven he came and sought her To be 
his holy bride, and with his blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Watch the next one. Elect from every nation, yet one or all the earth, a charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth, one holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food. And to one hope she presses with every grace endued. We sang a lot about songs. Though with a scornful wonder we see her sorrow pressed by schisms rent asunder by heresies distressed. Yet saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up, how long? And soon the night of weeping we're going to sing. Bless you all. Any need, anyone needs prayer for anything at all, come forward. Now it says in the liturgy, page 5, paragraph 16, it's time for tea.